talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zabel. We spent our first season diving into a pressure injury case study, the case of Mr. Y. We learned a lot from this case. If you haven't heard season one yet, I encourage you to go back and listen in. On today's episode, we are kicking off our second season by focusing in on pressure injury prevention guidelines and giving you an overview of the most important topics. To address this critical subject, we are joined once again by Kathy Milne, an advanced practice wound ostomy continence nurse at Connecticut Clinical Nursing Associates. Together, Kathy and I will discuss current guidelines, common risk tools, documentation standards, and so much more. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. There's a lot to talk about in this season two, so I'm eager to get going. To start off, try to remind our listeners and tell them a little bit more about your background in medicine and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries. I am a, an advanced practice wound ostomy continence nurse, and I practice across the continuum. I do see patients in acute care and actually co-chair the skincare team there. And I also work in outpatient in a wound center, long-term care, assisted living, make house calls. So I do see pressure injury prevention and how it's implemented really ac- ac- across many settings. Kathy, it sounds like you're all over the place. It's a, a spectrum of patients you're seeing in quite a different settings. Is there one of those settings that you find really something you're more passionate about? I think I'm passionate about all those settings. I think assisted living is a newer area that is underregulated in terms of pressure injury prevention. And I think as we start peeling back the onion and get more data now that we're out of the pandemic, we're certainly going to find that there are pressure injuries that occur there and that there may be some regulations that need to be initiated in that arena. As far as acute care, I think the most stunning thing that I have found is that when, although all of us have really been championing prevention for as long as I can remember, it wasn't until the federal government essentially gave money to the hospitals to encourage prevention. So unfortunately, money talks, but it really made a huge difference in, re- in reducing the severity, not necessarily the number, but the severity of pressure injuries in that setting. And really, we're seeing a lot more medical device-related pressure injuries in that setting. Today, we're going to provide the audience with a comprehensive look at pressure injury prevention guidelines so we can understand where we've come from, where we are, and where we're headed. Could you give us a broad strokes overview of the current guidelines and where they stand? And you may have to break that down between the different settings that you practice in. Yeah, I think the leaders since 1987 is what used to be called the NPUAP, and now they're the NPIAP, who originally came out with guidelines. They recognized that there was a big issue, and their guidelines were evidence-based and drew from the literature. There Clearly, there's some expert opinion there, and it has to be. It's not like you're 
not you're going to have an experimental group where nobody gets pressure redistribution. And then they have updated their guidelines. Their last ones were out in 2019. And they're actually working on the next version with their colleagues in Europe, the EPUAP and the Asian Pacific Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel from, from Asia. We can look up for some more updates on them. And what they do is we'll go back to the last five years of literature and re, re-examine some of the evidence that's out there. The history of pressure injury risk assessment is really interesting because it did start with the NPUAP uh, or NPIAP. So I'm still I'm using old terms then with their new name. And and Europe got on that was in '87, and Europe really got on board in 1996, as did Asia. That that really started it all, and it really has made a big difference in terms of how we care for our patients in any setting. So prior to 1987, is it fair to say that? practitioners almost ignored any preventative measures or were there some smaller groups fractioned off across the country or the world that were thinking about this at a somewhat intellectual or preventative level? The literature goes way back, even into the into Florence Nightingale, who basically said you need to turn and reposition people. So it's always been a an issue. It has been, it was really more nursing focused. And I think what the NPIAP did was, is try to broaden it's the the lack of knowledge and lack of prevention and try to put some guidelines. Now, remember, we didn't really have guidelines until the 80s, too. This was really the first step. And actually, the first step was from the federal government, which the AHCPR actually came out with guidelines for prevention and then treatment. And then from that, the NPIAP started. Kathy, if you remember, I'm a, a plastic surgeon and a wound care aficionado of sorts. I like to take care of a lot of different wound care patients. And we as physicians oftentimes just write simple orders that say, turn and reposition every two hours. Tell me your thoughts on how suboptimal that is and where we as physicians need to be going with our direction of this patient's preventative measures. Really, our whole thought about repositioning has changed. We don't need to do that standard every two hours because it really needs to be an individualized plan. A lot depends. And that's because our knowledge has grown. We do know that even what we think is the most immobile patient will actually move and shift themselves up to five times an hour. And so even small repositioning can be helpful, but also we need to do the right repositioning. And that's interesting because a lot of times the NPIAP does not recommend pillows for turning somebody on the side. They're really recommending wedges. And that's a lot of times because our pillows vary in quality and thickness. And when you wedge them in and roll them, you can actually have add skin tension to the sacral area. So it's a very complex, repositioning is a very complex skill, and it really shouldn't be left to the amateur. And we all need more education on how to reposition people properly. That's helpful, Kathy. So assessing risk is really a critical piece of this whole puzzle. So what are some of the structured risk tools that are out there today that are commonly used and when should we be using them? Everybody hangs their head on the risk assessment tool. And if you look at the Cochrane reviews and the literature, the evidence base is saying, yes, you need a standardized risk assessment tool, but it has to be coupled with interventions and for, for people at risk. So the three tools that most people use, so the, in, in the U.S., we have the Braden the Braden score is now actually owned by a company 
that licenses it out. So you do need to pay for the privilege of using the Braden scale. There's the Norton scale that actually came out in 1962. The Norton Plus is actually better because it actually looks at other factors that really can contribute to pressure injury development, like anemia, hypotension, fever, altered mental status. And those are the things that we really usually don't capture in the typical risk assessments. And then there's the water low, which actually is used quite extensively in Europe. And what do you think these comprehensive skin assessment tools should be done? So the literature, again, is varied. It's interesting. So if you look at the long-term care setting, the federal guidelines or suggest that you do them on admission weekly and then for four weeks and then quarterly thereafter. It doesn't say if there's a change of condition or so on and so forth. And that's really key is when that patient's condition changes. They may have dehydration, which will change tissue tolerance, which will eventually uh, affect how you react to any pressure redistribution or lack thereof. Acute care actually has no standards. The literature suggests that you should be doing this at least daily. And if they're in the critical care unit, then you should be doing it more often. And again, home health is usually on admission and then every 30 days. And then there's nothing again in assisted living and very little in outpatient wound centers that would depend on their EMR and how they've set up EMR. The standards are everywhere, but you do need to have a standardized tool. That is, I think, critical. And when you are looking at any type of legal issues or concerns from a family member or a quality standpoint, they really look at, did you assess that patient? Now, when you look at risk assessment, there are a lot of times that the non-experienced nurse will actually either over, usually overestimates their Braden score in the U.S. And I have found that too. So we'll see a 22 or a 20 when they're really 18. The other thing that I see is that people just look at that total score rather than looking at the subsets, which is very important because you can score over 18 or over 16, depending on what your cutoff is by your policy, but still be at high risk. I think what you've alluded to, Kathy, is that the the patients that we see are very complex and have a lot of things going on. And we use these scores to try to give us some degree of information, but looking down into the subsets or critically looking at the entire assessment tool, not just a single number, is probably more important in making sure that we're coming up with the right strategy for this patient. Absolutely. But we also have to appreciate critical thinking. Uh, I don't think we expect the new graduate out of nursing school or the new nurse's aide to be looking at the patient like you or I would who have many years of experience. And that's something that we all need to help mentor our new people in the healthcare setting to look for some of the critical things such as tissue tolerance or poor appetite, anemia, hypotension, uh, and dehydration. And lately, I have it's July or really August where we're recording this. We're in the middle of a heat wave. I can't tell you the impact it's had on my practice. I have seen a lot of pressure injuries coming from the home setting in the, in the acute care setting because these people are dehydrated. Heat kills people. If it doesn't kill you right away, it kills you slowly. And a lot of that is through pressure injury and, of course, kidney injury also. That's really helpful, Kathy. I think 
one of the things you said, which really resonates well with me, is the fact that we really, as care providers, need to have critical thinking, that we utilize these scores and assessments simply as a tool to alert us to where to be more active in our critical thinking. And I think that's a great way to say it. And I think it's a great way to share with some of our younger colleagues about how we can best take care of these patients. Let's shift a little bit to specialty surfaces and tell me a little bit about what you think are some of the guidelines or recommendations for specialty surfaces when we should be utilizing them for our patients. So when you look at the guidelines, it says if you're high risk, you should have some type of specialty surface. I we Every acute care setting has lots of them. I think long-term care really was the forefront. They have a lot more specialty surfaces than you would see in an acute care setting. And the issue that I see is that we it's the transitioning of people now. Because I think people are readily use these specialty surfaces maybe they should be looking a little bit more at their seating surfaces because I think we still lack a standard uh, method or, or communication or we forget to look at where the patient is sitting most of the day. And part of that is the regulations because if you are discharged from an acute care setting and go to home health, where do most people spend their time at home? They're in their recliner chair, right? And so you are not allowed to have a specialty seating surface on your Barco lounger, but you can on your wheelchair. So if you want a specialty seating surface at home, you have to have the patient qualify for a wheelchair. So there are a lot of barriers. Now we need pre-approval when for home health patients for a specialty surface. And there years your group one, which used to be readily available for prevention, is no longer readily available. You have to get pre-approval. I've waited three or four weeks to get a low air loss mattress at home when I've discharged people from the acute care setting to the home health setting. So it's there are a lot of barriers for us, but we need to think about individualizing our specialty services for our patient. And we, I think, are going to have a, a deeper dive into this later in this season too. That reminds me, Kathy, that I just recently had a patient with a stage four ischial pressure ulcer, and I tried to order a specific treatment, and I was unable to get it approved by the third-party payer because I didn't have a specialty mattress. The patient didn't have a sacral ulcer. They had an ischial pressure ulcer from the sitting position, but my therapy was turned down because we could only get the pressure mattress for the supine position and not the sitting position. Critical thinking is sometimes needs to happen and the guidelines fall short? Well, I don't think it's necessarily the guidelines. I think it's perhaps some payers' interpretation of the guidelines because the guidelines are pretty clear. If they have a they have a pressure injury, especially on their ischial area, they need something in the seating for their seating position. So we've talked a lot about patient evaluation, but what about reevaluation? You alluded to it a little bit about timing of when to reassess. But how do you determine when these measures should take place and what we should be thinking and how we should address that? So the guidelines are pretty broad because they do leave, again, up to the individual clinician at the bedside. We need to reevaluate the patient. What is really, what is your policy or what's your organizational's practice in reevaluating? So certainly the literature is pretty clear about more frequent reevaluation in this sick or critical care patient and less so in, let's say, a, a home health setting. 
but your policy, you should have a policy and of course, staff education, and of course, include family members too and the patient in this in terms of how to reevaluate. I'm sure you being a plastic surgeon, teach your patients to use a mirror and look behind their bottom on the, onto their bottom and or teach their family member to do. It's really important. I agree. And when we talk about evaluation and reevaluation, we have to really discuss about documentation because if you didn't document the evaluation or reevaluation, it never really happened. Tell me what you think is working in the area of documentation right now and what's not working for us. I think we in healthcare are currently stressed from understaffing and we're hit by all these quality um, initiatives. So we have a tendency to get what I call click disease, click on the electronic medical records. So it's if you're clicking, it's be you're just hoping that somebody before you did the right thing and did all the right documentation. So that's one huge lacking area that really probably needs to be addressed and hopefully AI won't be doing it for us. But clearly you need to have a system set up that actually helps you uh, do that critical thinking. What does that Braden score mean to you? What interventions did you put into place? Were they individualized? Did you see if they were working? Are there other other factors why it may not be working? For example, we really don't address pain management in a lot of these patients. It could be as simple as osteoarthritis. It could be something more serious that that's why they don't want to help reposition or actually refuse repositioning or refuse a specialty surface. So we we need to build in cues in within our EMR. And I know that I think I think it's Dr. Rootsy may be talking about documentation in this season too. And so I'm sure he, he's got more than 20 minutes, just like I have more than 20 minutes to talk about our passions. That's great. I think you alluded to whether AI is going to have any role in documentation or whether artificial intelligence is going to have any role in repositioning in our future. And maybe that's something we'll have to talk about in a future episode. But for today, I think that just about wraps up our conversation. Any final thoughts, Kathy, you'd like to share with the audience about pressure injury prevention guidelines? Guidelines are really important. They help us streamline our practice. And I'm looking forward to the newer guidelines that are becoming out in 2024 and see what's new in the literature. That's great, Kathy. Thanks again so much for joining us again. That's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Kathy Milne for joining us today to dig into the important topic of pressure injury prevention guidelines. And thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.